Okay. Okay. So let's let's. Uh, any questions? Don's got the microphone. For the six or seven people who listen to our podcast, please speak into the mic, and away we go. Who's got Who's got questions or thoughts on this? Yo. Um. Uh, towards the middle, let's see here. Um, in two, two, uh, give understanding. Uh, one of my, one of the author I've been blessed with, uh, Brennan Manning, uh, made a, I thought, a profound observation uh, that sometimes we desire or demand clarity in order to avoid trust and dependence. Um, sure. So it's not so much what we do, but why. We are told to, to ask for wisdom, to seek wisdom, yeah. look at Proverbs, um, but why we are, are doing that is, is perhaps more important. So Don, for those of you who sit in the back, um, Don's reminded of the principle that sometimes we want clarity to avoid trust. Um, certainly that's the case with a lot of questions, right? You know, if you're not sure why we're doing, if my kid isn't sure why we need to go to the dentist, he, he wants understanding because he doesn't trust what he potentially doesn't trust what's going on. And so certainly when God explains himself, it's easier. Um, and there are times when God's explanation, and I think kind of, we didn't go to Hebrews, but look, looking at Habakkuk, um, looking at Habakkuk 2, Um, we'll compare that with Hebrews, but, uh, Hebrews 2, 2, the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets. So you may run who reads it for the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. Go to Hebrews 10. And uh, we'll pick it up in verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for, and then he quotes, he quotes selectively, it's kind of a pastiche, he grabs a phrase, he doesn't grab the entire verse, yet a little while, and the coming one will the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if his soul shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So the author of Hebrews gets from this answer, my righteous one will live by faith. There is a certain amount of Habakkuk being told, you're going to have to trust me. Um, yes, he's not gonna, God does not fully explain all that he's doing to Habakkuk. And I think there are some implied questions that Habakkuk raises that don't even get directly answered. The, the, the most, the one I talked about um, two weeks ago, the implied one, how does God utilize a wicked people and not contaminate himself? God doesn't answer that. He doesn't, but he doesn't answer that. Um, and we should be thankful that he does that because the same issue is the Lord orchestrated the crucifixion 
so the early church can say truly gathered in this city where Pontius Pilate and Herod to do whatever your predetermined plan had, had ordained to take place. So, so God is able to orchestrate, plan, and bring to pass the evil deeds of evil people that they're responsible for in some way, I don't know how, that, that it, it is still accomplishing his will. So he doesn't answer that question, but so there's an element of basically saying to Habakkuk, look, you're going to have to trust me. It's similar to the answer John the Baptist gets. Remember John the Baptist in prison, and that really confuses him. Because as he understood it, he's preparing the way for the Messiah, and then the Messiah is going to bring in a kingdom, and he's going to smash the Romans, and he, everyone thinks it's going to be great. And instead, he's in prison. There's a growing, he's hearing of a growing um, front pushing against Jesus, led by the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and, and, and it's not going according to plan as he understands it. So he sends his disciples to Jesus to say, are you the one we're waiting for? Should we wait for another? And Jesus' answer does not answer the implied question. The implied question is, why, why would you ask that? Be because this isn't working out the way I thought it was supposed to work out. And Jesus' answer is, look at the works I do. do th are they the works the Messiah is supposed to do? Which is to say, you, no, you've, you've biblically sized me up correctly. Then he says, blessed is he who does not stumble because of me. You're going to have to trust me. No explanation of what's... He doesn't... He could have said, John, you got to understand. First, I'm going to be crucified, and then I'm going to come back and set up a kingdom many, many years later. Right now, I'm going to die for the sins of the people, and I'm going down. He said some things plainly like that to the disciples. They never really understood it. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of the Gentiles. And Peter, far be it from you, Lord. Right? So, so it's pretty consistent that Jesus' followers and his disciples and John the Baptist really couldn't wrap their heads around a dying Messiah. But Jesus could have tried to explain that to John the Baptist. No, the answer was, nope, you're, you're right about who you think I am. Trust me. And there are times when that's God's response. And I, I think what you're getting at is, and sometimes you're like, yeah, I'd, I'd rather be told what's going on. <laughs> and ask for those things. That's where I think the real distinction is between the child-like faith saying, Father, I'd like to know, and what you get, which is, I won't accept this until you explain it to me. I refuse to believe this until you can justify yourself to me. That is a very different thing. And so being careful whether our questions are going from, if it's like, you don't owe me an answer, but if I would love some explanation. I, I think primarily, and by the way, the uh, make it known and understanding, is the understanding the Lord's given him thus far for everyone else. I almost view it like, the insight Habakkuk's got in this dialogue with God, give to those of faith as well, moving, moving on. Or the insight that enables Habakkuk to write this psalm, give to those who read the book after him. I, I don't think he's asking for necessarily for further clarification, but rather the insight that says God knows what he's doing and God can be trusted and God will make all things right and we need to be patient and wait. Give that insight for the in the because that phrase um, in what is it the phrase is uh, uh, in the midst of the years in that in between time where there's going to be uh, generations of people struggling with here's what God said He'd do but we're still waiting for Him to do it. G give those people as well understanding that they might 
come to the similar resolution. I, I don't think he's asking for further knowledge as much as here's because the psalm is given corporately. This is for all the people to sing. Lord, give them that same understanding and insight you've given me that you do know what you're doing. You do have a plan. You are going to make things right. Give that understanding. Give that life that you promised to those who live by faith. And in your wrath, remember mercy. But yeah, that's a long-winded aside on your, your point. Yeah. Other thoughts, questions on this? Anything? Okay, turn to Lamentations chapter 3. I could show you a lot of examples. I'd like to show you a couple of this principle of, of fighting. It really is a fight of faith. I mean, there are times I know in my life where believing and trusting in God is easy. You ever had a moment you're just struck by some beauty, whether it's in creation, a sunset, or just struck with how blessed you are? You're just from, just, wow, God's been good. Or, you know, you see your children do, what, what, there's any number of things that can cause you to just, God is eminently trustable. God is eminently good. And then there are times where it's a struggle. I mean, there's a reason why this psalm ends with, I will. He's committing to trust God and rejoice in God in trial. And again and again in scripture, the pattern is one of the, one of the most significant tools to fight discouragement, to fight to believe God and to hope in God, is remembering what God has done in the past. And so Lamentations is written by Jeremiah as Jerusalem is destroyed. As the people are killed and taken away into slavery and captivity, the temple is destroyed, the temple worship is done, the Davidic king is, take, is, is killed and his descendant taken with him to Babylon, um, his eyes gouged out by Nebuchadnezzar, and, and Jeremiah is absolutely undone. And he lays it out in chapter 3 of Lamentations. Well, let's just begin verse 1. <clears throat> I am the man who has seen affliction. Under the rod of his wrath, he's driven and brought me into the darkness without any light. Surely against me has turned his hand against again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones and besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like those, like the dead of long ago. Pa pause. I find it incredibly encouraging the scripture gives word, gives voice to incredibly dramatic, powerful lament. If you think it's Christians are always, you know, happy, smiley, clappy, you're not reading your Bible. There is room within the life of faith for prayers like this. Now, I think it's important that this prayer gets somewhere. It doesn't stay here. If this is where Jeremiah stayed indefinitely, that might be problematic. But in the context of where he's going and how this is moving. This is moving somewhere. Um, this, is, this is righteous and good and fine. Let's keep going. He has made my flesh, uh, okay, seven. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. I've talked to people who, who I feel like my prayer's bouncing off the ceiling, like God's not listening. He has blocked my ways with blocks and stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. 
He turned aside my steps, tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and sent me as a target for his arrows. And, and Jeremiah has the added difficulty of the fact that he was sent to give this message to Israel over many, many years. And he was, um, he was attacked, persecuted for this message, thrown into a well. At one point, the king burned up his scroll false prophets rising up telling him no Jerusalem will be, I mean, so he's had a rough time of it. And then everything he was warning them about and everything he said was going to happen has come and it's awful. He drove into my kidneys, the arrows of his quiver. I've become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunt all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel but I thought God doesn't give stones when we ask for bread. He made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I've forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. He's right at the brink of just giving it up. I'm out of hope. Out of hope in the Lord. My endurance has reached its end. I'm, I think we might say I'm at the end of my rope. Remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. Oh, look, 21. But this I call to mind, and therefore, I have hope. What's he do? He starts remembering what's true. And what's going to happen is he's going to reframe the situation. It's still pretty ugly, but he's going to reframe it with God's word, promises, and grace in view. And it's going to be a different picture. That's why I say this is a movement. He's, where he starts is okay if you can make the movement Jeremiah makes. And this, it's in this context that these verses, we put up on little crochet things on our wall— the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Isn't it remarkable that this verse that is so precious and has encouraged so many people occurs in such a dark place? Like a, like a rose in the midst of like, you know, where a forest fire has gone through. I mean, it's just remarkable. How, how, how do you go from God's like a bear tearing me to pieces, God's like a sadistic archer who ties me up and shoots arrows in my kidneys, to the steadfast love of the Lord never see because he's been remembering and thinking about what God has done, his faithfulness in the past. So the Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I'll hope. And now begins to reinterpret his situation. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks for him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It, isn't that kind of reframing, he shut out my prayers? No, perhaps it's good that God is teaching me to be patient. Maybe that's another way of interpreting he, he does, he's walled up my prayers and not listened to my cries for help. Maybe, maybe this is a different way of viewing that, a more faithful way of viewing that. It's good that one should wait patiently let you wait quietly for the salvation, Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke of his youth. There is goodness in discipline and, and, and growing. Let him sit alone in silence when it's laid upon him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. Maybe you're not eating gravel. You just got your mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes let them be filled with insults, for the Lord will not cast off forever. But though we cause grief, it's not as though the situation has changed, and it's not as though his old picture was entirely wrong. 
God has caused grief. We read that in the first part of the chapter where he's making it very clear. God's like a bear. God's like an archer. God's walling me up. No, no, there's a very real sense. God has brought this to pass. God has caused him grief. That, that isn't, he wasn't wrong on that point. But he was leaving other things out. Though he caused grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart, which is to say he's not a sadist. When he disciplines, it's not because he, he, he gets enjoyment, a thrill, from punishing. He does not afflict from the heart or grieve the children of men to crush underfoot or all the prisoners of the earth to deny man justice in the presence of the Most High to subvert a man in his lawsuit. The Lord does not approve. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishments of his sins? Which is another reframing of this. You know, I'm a sinner. And if God has chosen to visit this discipline on me and my sinful nation, am I really in a position to complain about it? Am I really in a position to say, hey, that's not fair? Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. And you can keep going, but it all hinges on remembering what God has done in the past. Psalm 77 that we looked at, exact same pattern. It, it's, it's all over the place. Go, go to 73. It, there's, there's legion of examples of this principle. But, and the point I want to get at is this. Frequently when I try to, practically, how do you employ this for yourself or for someone else? Um, you, you've got to actually go and and read through, think through God's past faithfulness. It's easy enough to go, yeah, yeah, with the Exodus, yeah, yeah, I know the Exodus. No, no, take 20 minutes and read the account. There's some just wonderful, I, actually, don't go to 73, go to Exodus 3. Um, there's just a couple passages that just I love in Exodus, um, just thrill my heart. And you're, you're not going to see them when you go, yeah, yeah, whatever. Now, go, go read the account. This is why I think Christian biographies are great to read. Read about God's faithfulness in Adoniah Judson's life and William Tyndale's life. Read about God's faithfulness in, in the saints before us. Be reminded of his character. Be reminded of his, his faithfulness to them. So Exodus 2, sorry, 23, okay? During those many days, the king of Egypt died. The people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. I, I, clear language about God's concern. And then what happens? You get the burning bush encounter. And the Lord God himself testifies to this, right? Um, in verse 6, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and Moses hid his face. He was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I mean, the, Moses is making clear God is acting because of what he saw, what he knew, what he, he's acting in compassion. 
he understands, he gets the plight of his people. He hears and fully comprehends their cry, and that's the basis of his action. Look at the, again, the end of 24 of chapter 2. God heard, God remembered, God saw, God knew. Then 3.7, the Lord said, I have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard the cry of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. And then down in verse 9, and now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians... So, so Moses is setting this up to, to hammer the point home. God is about to act and do what he's about to do because he sees, hears, understands their plight, their anguish, and he remembers his promises that he made to Abraham. I just look at that and just like, that's beautiful. Okay, bear that in mind when you're, when you're questioning, is God seeing and understanding you and your plight? Because this took some time. They're crying out to God for a while. And so we can read over this during the many years. Verse 23, during the many days, sorry, the many days. There are many days where it didn't look like God saw, knew, heard, or cared. And yet Moses is driving home emphatically. He did. He did. You see the right perspective. So, so just something as simple as that gives me encouragement and helps me believe God looking forward into the future. Don. Um, many days. Uh, sometimes the transition between the, the I guess it say, uh, doubts uh, or, or que questions and the answer isn't as isn't it uh, takes longer than the two or three minutes it reads takes to read the uh, a psalm that, that does the same thing yeah. um it can be a sea it can be yeah. a, a season or, or years uh, uh, as no no we can we can skip over those things my i think my favorite psalm is 41 i waited patiently for the lord and he inclined to me and heard my cry the hebrew is literally waiting i waited and it's actually the culmination of well, three psalms. We're waiting and asking God, where are you? Where? And then Psalm 41, waiting, I waited, and he answered me. Well, it's great when you get to the answer, but during the waiting while you're waiting, hurry up and wait, it's test of faith. I mean, and, and that's what's, what I, the point I want to make from, from uh, Habakkuk is if Habakkuk's promise of life the righteous will live by his faithfulness and or his faith. And the faith in view in Habakkuk in the first instance is the faith that chooses to trust God even in difficult circumstances when you don't see the, the promise being fulfilled. That when the New Testament three times cites this as the basis of what it means to believe, something like that is in view, which means then that really the... the the faith in Jesus that saves is the type of faith. It's of the same cloth as the faith that trusts God in difficult times we don't understand. In fact, I'd say that's the most critical times to be fighting by faith. It's not incidental. It's at the heart, at least in Habakkuk, of what Habakkuk's talking about. And then Paul's like, and that's what I'm talking about. God justifies people. So, so you're in my determination or determination not to fight by faith to, to be full of hope in trial is no small thing. It's at the heart of faith in Christ and in God. It, it's, it's where the proof's in the pudding. So 
you're in good, if you're struggling with that, you're in good company. But I also can't stress to you enough this, the importance of battling and warring by faith in the face of discouragement, hopelessness, and and sorrow. Like that. That's the entire. That's the hokey pokey. It's what it's all about. That's it. Okay. Yes. Oh, Tim. Well, Timothy. Um, just to sort of continue to think that out logically, uh, you had mentioned a few weeks ago, uh, the idea that like the Bible has to be the premier, uh, there, there can't be something else greater than the Bible that attests to the Bible being great or else that other thing is superior. So if, if we are relying on, uh, the culmination of all of our understanding, and not ascribing to something higher, then we're essentially saying that we are the pinnacle of, of understanding and our faith is only in our knowledge. Yeah. And if so, so just to, uh, I guess logically, it, it, it really plays out as if, as if you need logic to determine that. But, <laughs> but, but yeah, what you're doing when you're not having faith, like what Habakkuk is describing is that you're essentially saying that, no, I can't understand this, and so therefore I discount it, which is lifting yourself up to a place where only God should be, right? You know, so I mean, us as Christians can sort of say, oh, well, obviously, I, I don't want to worship myself above all else. Uh, but that's sort of what you're doing when you, when you find yourself, you know, rejecting God's, uh, you know, what he says he's doing and can do and has shown himself to be able to do. We have to trust that because he is obviously pre- predominant yeah. and not us. But. Well, and that's and that that element of faith is what gets highlighted. What's Abraham's act that gets repeatedly referenced? It's by faith he offered up Isaac, and and understand when God says that it's not. There's a double dilemma in God calling on Abraham to offer up Isaac. There's the initial dilemma that any parent would feel at the horror of being asked to sacrifice your son. Like that alone is 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 repulsive horrific, awful. But there's a bigger problem. God didn't just say through any old descendant, will you have children greater than the sands of the sea? It's through Isaac. So from Abraham's point of view, you have specifically said it's Isaac through whom the promise comes. It's Isaac through whom you'll be the father of many nations. Kill Isaac. (laughs) That and the author of Hebrews gives us a little insight into how, into how Abraham, he gets it wrong, but he gets it right. What he gets right is God's not going to break his word. So Abraham, according to Hebrews 11, um, but, but just understand the dilemma of faith. You've got the, the natural difficulty of the repulsiveness and the abhorrence of what is called for. And the fact that the one who's calling him to do it appears to be breaking his word in calling on you to do it. I can't have descendants named after Isaac if Isaac is killed, right? So the author of Hebrews gives us this insight into how Abraham's faith, so again, notice the faith is in the the inexplicable. This doesn't, what? (laughs) And so the author of Hebrews says this, fascinating little insight um, into Abraham, verse eight, no, not verse eight, Um, where is it? Um, 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received 
the promises, was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it is said, through Isaac, shall your offspring be named, he considered that God was even able to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So Abraham's way he figured out, well, I guess, just get get the confidence in God. God isn't lying to me. God promised me it's through this particular son that my descendants will be named. So, I guess, if God is going to have me put him to death, God's going to have to raise him up from the dead. That's faith. He's wrong. That's not how it's going to turn out. What's going to turn out is, stop. And there's a ram caught in a thicket. But Abraham's faith is in the, it's inexplicable. I mean, just imagine how how great Abraham's faith must be. To, to both receive, I mean, he gets up early. He doesn't delay and drag his feet. He, he, he trusts God. He doesn't understand what God is doing. Even his attempt to guess at what God's doing is slightly off, but he's commended for his faith. Whatever's going on, it's not that God is mocking and tricking me. It's not that God's breaking his word. So he's guessed at how it's going to end. He's wrong. That's fine. <laughs> but his faith in the face of, I don't get it. Um, it's, it's remarkable. Absolutely remarkable. Uh, there's a constant, almost uh, probably universal theme in Scripture that there's a God will make a promise, and between the promise and the fulfillment, there's a problem. Mm. Yeah. No, even, I, even the life of Christ. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, let me give you some more examples. Saul. What what does so Saul in two acts? Um, loses first a dynasty and then the kingdom. How does he lose this? How does he lose the dynasty? Anyone remember? So they got a battle coming up with the Philistines, and Samuel says to him, "Wait for me here. I'll be back in what three days, I think, and then I will offer a sacrifice and we'll go fight." Except it's the third day, and Samuel's not here yet. The sun's almost getting ready to go down. People are starting to leave. And so Saul, I mean, that's tough. Samuel is going to show up on the third day. He's going to show up just in the nick of time. But that's the problem. And so Saul eventually, his explanation to, to, to Samuel is, I had to force myself. I didn't want to do it. I, just for the sake of the people. But he's, he's, you're going to get slaughtered if your army doesn't hold together. And if the people are starting to desert and go back because, hey, we were waiting for the prophet to show up to get God's blessing, and he's not here. So Saul takes priestly function upon himself in a very understandable way. Pragmatically, I got to keep my army together. I got to encourage my people. We, we've been waiting. We, he did 99% of what he was told to do. Wait for me. You Just waited another hour. It would have been okay. And he loses the kingdom because he doesn't. So, yeah, I think again and again, and, and if, if you wonder why that might be, why is, I could imagine someone saying, isn't it kind of mean of God to make faith so hard? Why, why couldn't Samuel have shown up at the beginning of the third day, right? Well, I, I think the answer would be because what God is really after is not dogs who jump through hoops, but people who trust him. It's, it's your and my trust declares his trustworthiness. He is true. He is faithful. He, is, he is, keeps his promise and his covenants. And that is seen no more clearly than when there's little reason to think that other than your confidence in who he is. 
when we walk by faith, we declare to the angels, to the watching world more, our conviction that he is trustworthy than when we walk by sight. This is exactly what Satan's line of attack in challenging Job was. The Lord says, look at Job. Satan's like, well, how hard is it to be faithful and thankful when you give him everything? Right? And so Job is tested and his family is taken from him and his health is taken from him and he still worships God. Which one of those pictures shows God is more worthy of honor and praise? It's Job worshiping in the dust, not Job worshiping in his richness. So that's what God is after, is, is growing, strengthening, and then demonstrating, putting on display our faith, which is, so it's not arbitrary and it's not capriciousness that brings these tests of faith. God is greatly glorified by Abraham and Abraham is greatly blessed and he's in scripture and he gets mentioned again and again. Abraham is not resentful that God tested him. He's not in glory going like, that was a mean one. He is, he's receiving blessing and honor. Um, anyway, further thoughts, questions on any of this stuff? I got a full class and no questions. I don't believe it. Come on. Come on. We can go to more examples. We can do that too. Yo! Mr. Green. Hello. I was thinking this morning, is when you we haven't been here the last two weeks, but when you spoke about God using evil to correct or judge evil. And uh, I went back to Jeremiah here, 43.10, where the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, you might say our very Jesus, used Nebuchadnezzar, mm. my servant. <laughs> and you listen to the news today and you think, well, I wonder if God isn't doing that to nations today, but he can even do it on a personal individual level to correct us, yeah. if that's what we need. Yeah. No, think of how God displays his glory. Nebuchadnezzar, this evil and wicked king, which there's no debate he is wicked and evil. One example of just how evil he is, how, how, how ruthlessly cruel he is. He, because, because Jehoiakim, I think it's, it's Jehoiakim, no, Zedekiah. Zedekiah. Oh, good grief. Let's go to the end of Jeremiah and find out. If you can't quote it, look it up. Hold on. Um, 52, Zedekiah. Okay, it's Zedekiah. Um, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna, and he did what was evil in sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For because, for because of the anger of the Lord, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out from his presence. And Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon in the ninth year of his reign in the 10th month, on the 10th day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem, and he laid siege to it, and they built siege works all around it. So the city was besieged till the 11th year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people and for the land. Then a breach was made in the city, and all the men of war fled and went out from the city by night, by the way of a gate between the two walls, by the king's garden. And the Chaldeans were around the city, and they went in the direction of the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued, and the king overtook Zedekiah. So, so in the midst of this siege, they make a break for it at night, and they get caught. Then they captured the king, verse 9, and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamath, and he passed sentence on him. 
The king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, and also slaughtered the officials of Judah at Riblah. He put out the eyes of Zedekiah, bound him in chains, and the king of Babylon took him to Babylon and put him in prison till the day of his death. That is brutal. I'm going to make you watch your line come to an end. I'm going to watch, let make you watch your sons get slaughtered, your officials get slaughtered, and then I'm going to make sure that's the last thing you ever see, because I'm going to personally gouge out your eyes with my thumbs. Nebuchadnezzar is not a nice guy. And God is going to cause Nebuchadnezzar to write a chapter of the Bible and give him praise. Because he rules the nations and does with them what he pleases. Nebuchadnezzar writes most of Daniel 4. A proclamation of praise to God's sovereignty. So part of what God's going to do with Nebuchadnezzar is show, and I take, I take comfort from this. If God can find even in Nebuchadnezzar a vessel for good use, then there's hope for me and hope for you. If Nebuchadnezzar's too, not too far gone for the grace of God, that God cannot bring him, and he does it through making him eat grass and making, I mean, he gives him over to some, some weird it's a weird judgment. It's strange. But he humbles him, and he causes him to write Scripture because God wants to demonstrate he, he, he rules. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. Um, and, and he can wield Nebuchadnezzar like a hammer, like a tool. And he can cause Nebuchadnezzar to truly come to give him praise. I mean, it's so much so that David's able to rebuke his, his grandson, Belteshar, Belteshazzar, um, when, when the writing's on the wall and he comes and he interprets, he says, you, you know what God did to your father, Nebuchadnezzar. You know that he humbled him. And despite of that, you did. So like, it's even as an attempt to warn the grandson. But your point being, yeah, God works and will accomplish his purposes through, through evil people. Go to Luke chapter two. Um, when we studied Luke, I don't know, seven years ago, um, I know a bunch of you have memorized this passage, right? In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered, each to his own town. So just pause. What is undoubtedly an act of Caesar Augustus to flex and show his power. Right? I, mean, I mean, think about the burden. If, if, if you were told you got a month to prepare and everyone in this room has to travel by land, not in a car, by foot or by mule or by horse, to the town you were born in. If that takes, if that takes you time off from work, so be it. If that interferes with your plans, tough. I mean, this is what happens. Joseph takes Mary and they go to Bethlehem. And you're going to have to pay exorbitant rates at hotels because everything's going to be full. Whatever. Like, imagine the imposition and the, especially in an agrarian society, you got to take a month or two off to do this. And so Caesar Augustus is doing this first census. It's not like there's a big pattern of censuses. He's, he's trying to show his power and his strength. And we, the reader, know what? <laughs> he's fulfilling biblical prophecy. He's causing the Messiah to be born in the house of bread, Bethlehem. We, we see the hand of the sovereign king behind him. So even as Caesar Augustus is trying to show how tough and powerful he is, we see him doing nothing but God's fulfilling God's purposes. 
And again and again in the scripture, that's, that's what we see. So even through wicked, God is accomplishing his plans through Vladimir Putin. And that by no means, by no means is a pass to justify his actions or his actions. God is going to accomplish his purposes through President Biden. He is. Absolutely. No question about it. Um, he, he, he's the king of kings. This is why I pray when we pray for righteous leaders. I think it's right for us to First Timothy 2, to pray for them. But then be confident that even if he doesn't give us righteous leaders, his will will be done. He's not going to be thwarted. Our president will not thwart the will of God. And, and we taking confidence in that. Yeah. Was there, sorry, I just. Well, uh, this morning uh, <clears throat> there in Habakkuk, uh, Chapter 3, verse 2, uh, it had ended the verse up with uh, remembering mercy. And it made me think of Daniel and his prayer in chapter 9. I know a lot of times we think of the, the focus of chapter 9 being the 70 weeks. But, but after the 70 weeks, Daniel prayed. He prayed for his people, uh, the mm -hmm. sins. He prayed for himself. Uh, but mm -hmm. uh, no doubt they were a nation in despair. And I was looking at verse uh, 4 here in chapter 9. And he speaks, and I prayed unto the Lord my God and made my confession and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him and to them that keep his commandments. You know, there, we can keep his promise. That might be all we have to hang on to is mm. his mercy and his promises, uh, mm. even in the midst of despair. I think the people of Israel were in a lot of despair at that mm. time. Yeah. No, ab ab absolutely. Absolutely. Good word. So we've got something to hang on to. Well, and we've got more pictures of God's faithfulness. Habakkuk's looking primarily at the Exodus. We can look at the cross. We've got a clearer picture of God's faithfulness, love. I, mean, I have a friend of mine, because oftentimes you... you, you Timothy, you were, you were making this point that if we don't understand it, what we're tempted to say is, then there can't be an explanation because I don't understand how this could work. So, okay, God, explain yourself. Instead of saying, like, Habakkuk, I'm sure God's got his reasons. A friend of mine once asked me, you know, uh, does the Father love the Son? Does, the, does God the Father love the Son? Yes. Did the Father purpose and plan the crucifixion of the Son? Yes. So maybe love is a little more complicated than I want to think. Because usually it's something like, in my thinking, if I, I love my kids and I wouldn't want my kids to be unhappy, well, I'm unhappy and I'm God's kid, so. Well, the reason the father did that is because he, I mean, there's a good reason. I mean, we know the answer to this good reason. The father wants the entire watching world and the angels to see my son is a savior. My son is compassionate. My son is self-sacrificing. And he wants the son to receive that glory. So Jesus, we're told in Hebrews, um, for the glory set before him, he endured the cross, not despising its shame. Jesus goes to the cross, not because he likes suffering, but because the father's through this avenue going to give him the name that is above every name, king of kings, lord of lords. He's going to receive glory. And it's by vehicle of the cross. The father creates a context to display the son's glory. And... He, it's an act of love for the father to do that. So if love can be a little more complicated than are you happy at this moment? 
that those are the types of things we got to factor in. Maybe God knows what he's doing. Maybe, maybe I'm not the measure of all things. And maybe just because I don't and can't fathom what he's up to doesn't mean there isn't a good reason. The, the, the pride is I can't see an explanation, therefore there isn't one. Or maybe a step back. I can't see an explanation, therefore you better explain it to me. Right? And, but we've all been there. Like this is not like... It, it's just not for people out there. There's people in here like me that, that God knows what he's doing. And, and so when God says to us, trust me, this side of the cross, I think he's got a whole lot more basis to call on us to trust him. Um, Habakkuk's got the exodus. That's what he's looking to primarily. We've got the cross and the resurrection We've got Jesus revealing who the Father is, so that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So when God tells us, hey, can you trust me that I know what I'm doing? Can you trust me I don't give stones to people who ask for bread? Can you trust me I don't give scorpions to people who ask for bread? Notice he doesn't say people who ask for bread get bread. And he doesn't say people who ask for fish get fish. He just says they don't get stones, they don't get scorpions. Can you trust me? How much more Ought we, this side of the cross, to say, yeah, yeah, I'll, he's worthy of trust. I will commit to trust him. I will, I will, I will fight by faith to believe and trust him. That, that's ultimately what we need to do. And that's what this song is teaching us to do. Okay. God bless. Godspeed. Good day.